Hello, and welcome to the podcast for Christ Community Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. This is a message given by Tom Job on Sunday morning, December 4th, 2022, from the Gospel of Luke in chapter 2 and the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 5. Um, so, Merry Christmas, everyone. So, that's the first time I've said Merry Christmas. I think this year, I, I love to say Merry Christmas, but I know, I know um, there's lots of folks who, um, I think they're getting, they get, oh, I mean, you can kind of hear people grumbling about the fact that people say, you're not supposed to say Merry Christmas. Like when in all of their advertisements, they don't say Merry Christmas. They only say Happy Holidays. I remember a few years ago, there was a, um, uh, somebody said they got a flyer from Walmart and it said Happy Holidays 59 times and it didn't say Merry Christmas once. And the only one that said Merry Christmas was a magazine, uh, was a catalog that they got from Victoria's Secret. And they said like Merry Christmas like the whole time. But I get it personally because, I mean, I understand why they don't. And it's because like if you, like Christmas means the, the, the mass part, it, it's a Latin word, which means mission. And Christ is like the mission of Christ. Like when Jesus came down to, to, to be the king, to be the king of people's hearts and one day to be the king of the world. And um, he was born in a barn and he grew up poor and he had no equity in a house because he never owned a home and he had no retirement savings and he had no 401k and he had no money. And he said, beware of every kind of greed because your life doesn't consist of things that you own. So if I was trying to get people to buy stuff, I would try to keep his name like out of it pretty much as far as I, as far as I could. You know what I mean? Because... Oh, let's talk about that. There was a, there was an ad. There was an ad one time. This was in a Boston magazine in 1823, and it said it was a Christmas ad, and it said there is a time for giving. Said Solomon the king, and had that preacher lived in these days, he would have acknowledged that there is no time like the present, and never a better assortment of gifts. If he could have peeped into the bookstore of Monroe and Francis, he would have found a book for each of his wives and all of his concubines. And I thought, what? So, yeah, let's just keep Jesus out of that. But um, the, there was a guy, although there was, I was reading about a guy named Chet Fitch, and uh, this was a few years ago in New Jersey. And he died in October. He was like 88. And, he, and it had been a long fight. And he knew he was going to. And so he wrote Christmas cards to 34 of his friends. And he had a buddy of his mail them on the 20th of November. And for the return address, it said heaven. And it said, hey, this is Chet up in heaven. I can't even tell you. I don't have words to tell you how amazing it is up here. But I'll see all of y'all soon. And some of you sooner than you think. Um, <laughs> Merry Christmas, Chet. <laughs> I thought that was awesome. But, you know, like if you say, like a lot of times I personally think happy holidays is awesome because holidays, the word holiday, is a, it's a shortened form of the word holy day. And I thought, well, if everybody lived like every day of the Advent season is a holy day, like I just, I'm just going to lean in on getting to know what it means to know Jesus as my king and as my master and I just want him to be the king of the season for me and I want to like everything that he says I want to understand it and do it and it turns out that those are the happiest people like if a person lived a day like that they would look back and say these are these were the happiest days I've had this year you know where the where the, I when I first accepted Jesus when I was 20 and I started to go to church and sometimes in churches I'd never really been to them and they they would say things and I thought well that's 
seems a little bit weird, but you guys are the ones who know everything. But they used to say, um, God doesn't care about how happy you are. He only cares about how holy you are. And I thought, well, that seems a little mean, but... Um, and then that is super not true. Like that, that is super not true. And it's, I think it's kind of stupid to say it because God really, really does. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, it says, I want to tell you guys about the glorious gospel of the blessed God. And the word blessed is a Greek word that means happy. Like God is happy. He wants people to be. He, there, there's a place in Philippians chapter 1 where Paul said, you know, I'd rather if I die, it's better for me because I'll be up in heaven. It's going to be super awesome. But if I stay on earth, it's because I have like further work to do. And he said, and I do know that I'm going to stay really for y'all Philippians. I'm kind of the only reason I'm on earth is to stay down here for your progress in the, your joy and progress in the faith. Like the only reason I'm on earth is y'all aren't happy enough. And I got to work on that. So, you know, you believe in Jesus, but not enough to be happy about it. So there in second Corinthians chapter one, he said, he said, I am a worker for your joy, like your, your happiness. It's kind of a personal project of mine. Like I'm just trying to get you all to be happier because you super should. It says in first Peter chapter one, even though you've never seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, but you believe in him, you rejoice with a joy inexpressible and full of glory. There's, there's one place in um, like talking about holidays and holy days and in Nehemiah chapter eight, where, you know, Nehemiah was a book where they, after, well, they, after they had come back from like a long time in Babylon and all this stuff, um, and they came back and they had to build a wall that was all broken down, so they built it. And then when they were done, they had a day where from dawn to noon, they kind of built the scaffolding, a kind of a stage, and they just had really been neglecting like reading the scriptures, so they just had a whole day dedicated to that. And everybody just stood there, and Ezra and all these people were just reading from the scriptures and talking about it. And everybody was so overwhelmed that they just started weeping, and they were just crying so much, and Ezra said, Ezra said no, 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 no. No, that's not what we're doing here. Today isn't a day for weeping. Today is a day for like eating like tons of food and drinking and having fun. Today is a day of for rejoicing. This is a holy day. Like this is supposed to make you happier than ever because the joy of the Lord is our strength. I, I remember a guy saying, if the joy of the Lord is our strength, if you don't have it, you're weak. And I thought, so, I mean, wherever, when, there's coming a day when Jesus is going to come down from heaven and he's going to take over this world and he's going to make it into the world that it always should have been, but never has been. And one thing that like Isaiah says in chapter 49, in chapter 51, in chapter 55, in chapter 56, in chapter 60, in chapter 61, is that when Jesus takes over the world, the one word that he uses most consistently is joy. It's going to be a world. People always talk about the, we were talking about this morning about the post-apocalyptic world. There will be no zombies there. I mean, like that, the whole thing, the thing about like the post-apocalypse is the Greek, it's the word in, that they use for the book of Revelation. Revelation is a Latin word. The Greek word for that is apocalypse. And it just means that just when you see Jesus, when Jesus comes and takes over the world, when Jesus takes over the world, the, the, the post-apocalyptic world is going to be super awesome. It's going to be like the, a world full of joy. It said that the mountain 
mountains will sink. And it says, oh heavens, rejoice, oh earth, rejoice because all the nations are going to come when Jesus comes and takes over this world. And it's going to be throbbing with joy. When Jesus is king, it's just going to be a world of joy. And when Jesus comes to be the king of somebody's heart, like, like in the time that we live now, it's given people a chance to like let Jesus be the king of their heart. When Jesus is the king of somebody's heart, like when somebody has that thing of, I just love him and his love has conquered me and everything that he asked me, to, I just want to know everything that he wants. And I want to let him boss me around and I want him to tell me what to do. And I want to do everything that I know that he wants me to do. And I just want him to be the king of my life, my heart, my day, everything. Thing. Those are um, the happiest people you know. I mean, that's, I'm an old man, and that, and I've known a lot of people. Those are the happiest people I know for a lot of different complicated reasons, but, um, but they are. So, Sometimes people say, well, how do I, so if I want Jesus to be like the king of my life and the king of my heart, how do I know what he wants for me? Well, a lot of that is written down, like it's just in the book, you know what I mean? So like there's one place um, in Matthew chapter five, six, and seven called the Sermon on the Mount, and it's basically, people call it the manifesto of Jesus or the constitution of Jesus or whatever, but it's just basically, um, this is the way people, who know and love Jesus, who have come into his kingdom, who claim him as their king, it's how he wants them to live. And he super means it. Like if, if, if Jesus was, if I wanted Jesus to be like the king of my life and I wanted to like do everything he said, I would learn it. I would know it. I would like devote myself as much as I possibly could to doing it, there's a place in Deuteronomy chapter 26 that says, um, where Moses said, he had given them like a ton of like decrees and stuff. And he said, and so you are to do these decrees with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Like give yourself completely to doing these because you have declared this day, the Lord is my God. So you need to take this, do it. And so if I say Jesus is my king, if I declare that today, then I need to take the stuff he just said to do and devote all my heart to it and all of my soul to it. You know, there, you know, you know, there's that place, and this is actually at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus tells that story about a house on the rock and the house on the sand, and somebody took more time, and he dug all the way down to the rock, and he built the foundation on a rock rather than just plopping a house on the dirt, you know, and they look the same, and they're fine and everything, but then when the storm came, that's the house that's going to fall over, and this one's not because it's built on the rock, and people, when you ask somebody, so what's the difference between those two houses, and who's the person that's going to make it through the storm, and people always say, well, that house is the person who has Jesus, and the other house is the person who didn't, didn't, but that's not what Jesus said. He said, the house that's on the rock is the one who has my words and does them. And so it's just like, but 
like devoting myself to Jesus being my king, it's gonna, the reason I should do it is because it's gonna make me like super happy, like the happiest person, the, the, the happiest me I've ever been. But then when people, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you think, it's not that happy. Like it's, it's, you know, it's kind of serious and it is super serious. Like in chapter five, it says, so God, you ought to take this like super seriously because God really cares about what you think, not only what you do, but what you think. So like, like Jesus, the King has a will for like our sexuality, like, and you know, there's just certain things that I'm just not supposed to do with people, certain people or whatever. It's restrictive. But he said, but not only don't do that stuff, don't think about it. Don't even think about it. Like, seriously, he cares about what you think. Like, and he said, and don't murder anybody. So it's like, okay, I can kind of get that, that that wouldn't be Jesus' will. But he said, don't even think about it. Like, how do I know I'm thinking about it? I don't really think about it. If you're angry, it's that. Don't, that right there, don't do it. Don't be, don't call anybody names and don't be angry. Like, it's a serious, like seriously, God cares what you think about. In chapter six, he said, and you should care what he thinks about. Like when you, when you do stuff, don't do it so other people can see it. Just do it so he can see it. All you should care about is what God thinks of me. And I should really, really think about that all the time. Like he said, when you pray, don't pray so that people think you're amazing and awesome and say all kinds of words you don't normally say. Just do it so that he can hear it. I remember there was a guy named D.L. Moody back in the 1800s, and he had a church in Chicago, and, and they had like lots of prayer meetings, and if somebody kind of went off on one of his prayers and just on and on and on, he would just stand up and say, As our, while our brother is finishing our prayer, let's all turn to hymn number 173 and say, you know, but... But he just says, like, in chapter 7, he just says, this is serious. We should super take this seriously. Because In chapter 7, he says, because not everybody who thinks they're in this is actually in it. And I'm like, you know? And he's like, yeah, it's serious. So how is that going to make me happy? Like, if it seems so serious, and I'm supposed to seriously care about about the fact that he cares about what I think, and I'm supposed to care about what he thinks, and this is all so serious. Well, it's because I'm serious. I'm, I'm trying to get serious about, in chapter five, a God who is so kind. Like, just take, to take kindness seriously because God is super, super kind. And if he tells me to love my enemies, it's not, he's not asking me to do something that he hasn't done every second, every day, everywhere. It says in Luke, in Luke, he said he's kind to wicked people. Like, that's the kind of God we have. And in chapter 6, he said, you have a God who cares for you, and he's going to take care of you, and he feeds birds and flowers, and he's going to feed you. And take him seriously. It would make you so happy to take him seriously. In chapter 7, he said, you have a God who hears you. All you have to do is ask for stuff, and he'll give it, give it to you. If you take him seriously, it'll make you so happy. Like, it, like, for Jesus to be the king, you would be the happiest person ever. And so, and, and, and then, but right at the very beginning, he said of the of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, "Okay, so the entranceway into this kingdom, like the kingdom of Jesus, there are kind of these stones that you step on, and they're pretty serious. Um, people who come into the kingdom, people who take Jesus seriously." 
these are the stones they step on. He said, blessed are the poor. Um, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You kind of have to go through a time when you're poor and pained and humiliated and hungry. And that's all really serious, but it's the end. If you walk those steps, you're walking into joy. So like the word blessed, blessed, it's a, it's a word that scholars say, it just means happy. Like if, like, the poor who come into the kingdom are happy. The pained are happy. The humiliated are happy. To walk on that and just walk in it is, it's how you walk into happiness. The hungry wind up being the happiest. So, um, okay, so if you, t is that confusing? Like, are you, okay, everybody good? Okay, so, okay, so if you just take one. So the, so the word bless, in a, in a, in the, it's, these are called the Beatitudes. And in Italian, they say beati, beati sono i poveri di spirito. They're blessed, but they're happy. People who know poverty, people who know pain, people who know humiliation and hunger, if that's what leads them to the king, they wind up being the happiest people ever. So when you think about poor, like why would that be? So, okay, if you just think about that first one, happy are the poor. That, what do you mean by poor? Well, poor means I don't have what it takes. It's, there's, I'm, you can be poor economically, you can be poor emotionally, you can be poor spiritually. So like somebody who's poor economically is somebody who says, I don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes to make it. I don't have what it takes. I might not have what it takes to make it to the end of this month. I might not have it, what it takes to make it to the end of the week. I might not have what it takes to make it to the end of this day. I need my king to care for me. I need, a king. I need Jesus to care for me. That's why the message of Jesus is growing the fastest in the poorest places in the world. Because people who are poor, who say, I don't have what it takes to make it, I need Jesus. And they love and trust him. And when he takes care of you, you have stories to tell. Like you have stories to tell about how I didn't have what it took to make it. And he took care of me. Like so when we were an and I have my stories. Like when Tina and I were in seminary, we went, we went to seminary in 1980 with one kid, came home with three. And the, and, uh, but we were poor. Like we were, I, I was working full time in a grocery store. We lived in a trailer park that all the seminaries lived in. It was called the Fertile Crescent because everybody was pregnant all the time. But, they, so, but I was working at Owen's supermarket. I was making $400 a month and that's what we were living on going to school full time, you know? And so, but we, we, we wanted to live in a, there was a guy that I really, really loved and his name was Hudson Taylor. And he was, went to be a missionary in China when he was 20 years old in 19... 
1854. And he just lived by faith. Like, I'm not going to ask. He wanted to be like George Mueller, who raised 10,024 orphans and never asked anybody for money. So he said, I'm just going to trust God. I'm going to ask God to meet my needs. I'm not going to ask anybody for money. I'm not going to do any fundraising. God's work done in God's way will never lack for, for God's supply. And he wound up having 1,400 missionaries living that way in China. And God took care of all of our needs. And I said, we want to be like Hudson Taylor. We want to be missionaries live like that. So we said, if we have any needs, we're not going to tell anybody but God. So, and we're going to ask God to put it on somebody's heart, maybe to send us a check from our church back in Knoxville or whatever. And, and because they know that we were struggling, but we're not going to ask them. We're just going to pray. So we had this 62 Dodge Dart and it had a problem. It had a car repair. So my $400 wasn't going to make it to payday. So I, we just started praying. This is like on Tuesday. Oh, God, would you put it on somebody's heart to send us some extra money like last week? Because it's going to have to get here. So, so God, God, protect, give, send us money. Send us. We need some money. God, I don't know if we're going to make it. So we, we ran out of money by Thursday. God, is there something in the mail today? On Friday, God, is there something in the mail today? We were running out of food. So on, oh, and then, so Friday, I went and checked. God, is, is there a check for, in the mail? There wasn't anything. On Saturday, I went and looked. There wasn't anything. I said, dang it, dang it. I was trying to trust Jesus and there's not any money. And I was, you know, I thought you were gonna provide our needs. We were running out of food. We ate our last potatoes. That was all we had, Sunday lunch. And I thought, now what? I mean, I, thought, I was trying to trust you, uh, but now what am I going to do? And uh, so we ate our last potatoes on Sunday. I wasn't going to get paid till Wednesday. And we, that about two o'clock, we got a call from somebody. They said, hey, we're up from Knoxville. We're up in Winona Lake. Winona, that's where we, Winona Lake, Indiana. Yeah, yeah. I, did you know my wife's parents lived there? I did not know that. Yeah, can we come by and say, hey, sure, come on over. So they came on over to our trailer. We said, could we offer you any delicious water? That, so we, you know, and, and we sat and talked and da-da-da. And they said, well, thanks so much. It's been great talking. Um, so we'll see you. Bye. And they went and got in their car. Wait a minute. We have something for you. You said you do? Yeah, some people got some. We have 90 bucks for you, nine, a check for $90. And I, and I took it down to Owen's supermarket and cashed it because they were open till six o'clock. Bought two of the biggest pizzas that I could find there. And it was all we needed to make it to Wednesday. And I thought, thank you, Lord. You know what I mean? So it was like, the, it, was a, it was one of the happiest days of my life because I knew that I could trust God to be a missionary, you know? So... It means like if you, I don't have what it takes to make it, but I'm going to trust my king and I'm going to have stories to tell. Sometimes it means emotionally I don't have what it takes to, to take it. Like I'm so, I, I don't have what it takes to, I'm so discouraged or I'm so rejected or I'm going through something so hard and I just can't make it. I, Jesus, I need you to help me because I can't make it. All the prayers of the Apostle Paul, all, all of them, almost all of them, are about somebody's emotional health. God, help the Philippians' love to grow. To the Colossians, help their, help their wisdom to grow. To the Ephesians, I pray that they would have, their eyes would be opened up how much hope they have. I pray in chapter 3 that they could be filled with power to know the length, width, height, and depth of the love of Christ. For the Romans, I pray that they could, for the, I, like, I pray that, that 
that they would be filled with joy and peace in the believing and overflow with hope. And it's just like if I'm poor emotionally, I don't have what it takes to make it. I don't have what it takes to take it. I need you, King Jesus, to help me. And he does. There was a woman in our church who died years and years ago. She had cancer. She was a young mom with cancer. She had come to know Jesus and she was growing. And one day uh, she was up in the hospital getting some treatments and I went up to see her and, she's, and uh, we were talking and she was just growing and growing and growing, but it was hard. And then the, the, the phlebotomist came in, he was gonna take blood and she said, she said, oh, could you come back? I have to pee. Oh, I'm sorry, but she said, I have to go to the bathroom. But she said, she didn't really. But she, and he said, okay, I'll be right back. And she said, Tom, you got to pray for me. I hate this. I hate when they stick me. I hate when they take blood. I hate it. I can't do it. Will you pray that it won't hurt? And I said, okay, Jean, we'll pray. And I said, God, I pray this doesn't hurt. And then I thought, God, I do not know how this is not going to hurt. I mean, that needle is that fat. How is this not going to hurt? But you know, June, and so I prayed that it wouldn't hurt. And then when the phlebotomist came back in, the, the floor nurse came in and said, what are you doing? And he said, I was about to do a stick. He said, look on the chart. The doctor said, no more sticks for June. And he said, okay. And he left and she said, Tom, it didn't hurt. You bet it wouldn't hurt. It wouldn't hurt. So I don't, you know, sometimes I don't have what it takes to take it. I, I'm so poor. I don't have what it takes to make it. I don't have what it takes to break it. Spiritually, I, to make it. And then spiritually, just like, I don't have what it takes to break it. I'm, I have something in my life. I can't stop doing it. It's killing me. I can't stop doing it. I need Jesus to save me. I, I need my king to save me. I can't break with my past. I feel, I'm so ashamed of it. I need a savior. I need Jesus to save me. It's exactly what he came on earth to do. And when you feel so free, freer than you've ever felt in your life, and you're like, I'm happier than I have ever been in my entire life. And it was because I was so poor and I found a savior who would care for me and help me and save me. If I hadn't have been poor like I was poor, I never would have known the joy that I know. So, um, so in the Gospel of Luke, one thing that I noticed is there were certain people. By the way, how happy are you? Like. Are you happy, you know, are you? <laughs> I mean, I'm not really asking, but I'm kind of asking, how happy are you? If, you? if you're not really sure, ask people who love you and say, do you think I'm a happy person? And they'll tell you. And so, but, so the reason we're on earth right now is that people are coming into the kingdom every day and they need somebody to tell them about Jesus and they listen to the happy ones. Like they will listen to the ones who have joy about it. So there are certain people in the Gospel of Luke. One thing I noticed, there were certain people in the Christmas story who tell other people about the newborn king. And one thing about them is they're all very happy and people listen to them. And another thing I found out is that they were people who had stepped on these stones. There was one who was poor. There was another who was pained. There was another who was humiliated and another who was hungry. And they had found joy in the baby king. And they talked about him and people listened. And I thought, who was the poorest? Who was the poorest person in the Christmas story? Who was the one who you could say happy was this poor person? 
And it was a young bride in Luke chapter two. She had gotten married, I mean, like they did. They got married when they were 12, 13 years old. And she wound up being married for seven years. And then her husband died. And she was a widow at 20. And in the New Testament, there were women who were formidable in the business world. There was a woman named Lydia who was uh, uh, involved in um, textile retail. And, and she was a businesswoman. And there, were, uh, there was a woman named Phoebe who was a businesswoman who in Corinth, uh, Paul actually, she was the one who took the letter from the Romans to Rome, because, probably because of her business connections. She was a deacon. And she read the letter to them and probably explained it to them. But she was a formidable businesswoman. There was a woman named Priscilla who with her husband had a business together. But by and large, you get the impression that because of the world it was that women didn't have economic opportunities like they did. And so if a woman was a widow, it wasn't, it wasn't good. There was a, there, you just get the feeling there was a woman who was a widow and her only son died. And she was desperate. And Jesus said, okay, I need to bring him back. There were two sisters, their brother died, and you got the feeling that they were desperate. And Jesus said, okay, I need to bring him back, you know? But this was a woman at 20 years old. Her name was Anna. What do I do now? I don't have what it takes to make it or to take it. And it said that what she did, there's two ways to read it, but what she did, I think for 84 years was that she just stayed in the temple, stayed as close as she could to God, her king. And like Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 5, that there are widows that fast and pray and depend on God every day for everything that she needed. And she was so poor and that's what she did. And he took care of her until she was a hundred and five. And I believe she had stories to tell about how God had taken care of her for 84 years. And a young couple came in with a little baby in the temple because that's really basically where she lived. And there was a guy named Simeon who, he was kind of like her, an old guy, and he took the baby in his arms and he thanked God that he could die because God said he wouldn't die until he saw the Lord's Messiah. And he was holding this baby in his arms and he said, he's going to be for the rising and falling of many in Israel. And he said to this young mom, but a sword is going to pierce your heart. And in that one thing about, I, okay. I was going to finish this in 23 minutes and I didn't make it. So, but last week, but last week, um, I told you something that was very wrong and I've always heard it and I've always read it in biblical books and biblical books all by male scholars. And what they said was John the Baptist was the first prophet in 400 years. That is not true. Anna, it says that Anna was a prophet. When John the Baptist was six, I read that in a book written by a woman biblical scholar. I'd always read it, but I had never thought of it. 
that she was a prophet. And prophets were people who told people about the heart of God. And in that moment, when Simeon said, a sword is gonna pierce your heart, in that moment, she came up to that mom who was going to learn, lose her husband as well. And she thanked God. And she probably hugged her and said, you're going to be fine. Because of this baby, you're going to be fine. I'm 105 and he has taken care of me. I know secrets that other people don't know. I have stories that other people don't know. Do y'all know who that, okay. Do y'all know who the Ten Booms were? Like Casper Ten Boom and Corey Ten Boom and Betsy Ten Boom and how they got involved in the Underground Railroad in Harlem because when they realized what the Nazis were doing and what they were doing to, to the Jewish people and they started to rescue them, to hide them in their house and hide them and sneak them out. They were involved in estimated saving the lives of 900 of God's people as they, as they went into Scandinavia and were able to save them. And they were arrested. And their dad, Casper, was 84 years old and he died in 10 days. And then Corey was, they were put in Svenage in prison, which was a local prison. And then there was a certain point where they were transferred. Betsy and Corey were, they, they had been separated. They were transferred to a, a concentration camp on the border of Holland and, and um, Germany. And they said, and they said, um, and when they were transferred to that prison, they saw each other getting on the train and they were together. So they were finally together after how many days and then that they had been separated. And then they went to that prison together and then they went to Ravensbrück together. But this, so when Corey was talking about it, she was writing letters home and she said, we, she said we ha, um, this is what she, Corey wrote and said, we were able to witness here and there, not as much as I expected. There's much bitterness and communism and cynicism and deep sorrow. The worst for us is not that we suffer, but the suffering we see around us. We're leaning, learning to put the worst in the hands of our Savior. We're, we're not very cheerful. Our health is fine. My hair has turned gray. Life is hard. I feel like I've been drafted into the army, but that harsh German way. And Betsy wrote letters like this. On the same day, she said, Corey and I were together on the train. We enjoyed it immensely. It's strict here, but we sleep together, we eat together, we sew side by side. We are so happy. Both had physicals, we're fine. Corey's lungs have cleared up. They get us up at five in the morning. We're, we wear overalls and wooden shoes. We have so much fun walking around on wooden shoes every day and every night. We are experiencing thousands of miracles. A woman studied all of her letters and said, I never found the faintest trace of self-pity, but only trust, lightheartedness, and love. On June 25th, we had to report to the sewing room. The morning flew by. In the afternoon, 50 of us gathered outside. It was wonderful. Then we slept and did laundry, had a discussion circle in the evening. We had a wonderful Sunday, beautiful weather. Yesterday, many blessings. A good talk with Schmidt, received butter and cheese, washed a blanket, cabbage soup. Corey's doing well. We enjoy the beauties of nature, the sky very much. The weather's cold, just right. Every day, some sunshine. We are receiving amazing strength. And one day, I want to meet her in heaven and say, I need to know your secrets. I need to hear your stories. 
Thank you, Lord Jesus, for um, the fact that you have taken most of us, if not all of us, to a place where we had to be poor, where we didn't have what it took to make it or to take it. And we call out to you. We're not only stronger, we're not only closer, but we're happier because of it. It's a beautiful thing to have nowhere to go but you. We're all walking in the darkness. We all stumble in the night. Lord, did you forget about us? Are you gonna make this right? Is this how we always will be? Is this what we'll always do? Do we have a hope of changing? Can we ever come to you? To you? Undo our own Wash, make us clean Oh, come down and change everything Heal broken hearts, give us reason to sing. Oh, come down and change everything. Lord, what do you have to offer? Those who've lost all that's inside. Our other plans have been exhausted We're too tired to make this right Would you take our hands and guide us? We lost our way so long ago Fill our hearts, Lord, and allow us To trust you and bring us all back home Back home Undo our own Wash, make us clean Oh, come down and change everything Broken hearts give us reason to sing. Oh, come down and change everything. Undo our wrong, wash, make us clean. Oh, come down and change everything. broken hearts give us reason to sing 
Oh, come down and change everything.